All right. Hello. Welcome back to the Key to Success podcast. I'm your host, Terrell Key. And today, oh, man, like I have some school counseling superstars. These are probably arguably I mean, you, you can argue with anyone like these might be the most two like two most popular uh, people in school counseling. They wrote an incredible book that I keep with me everywhere. I mean, <laughs> seriously, interrupting racism. If you don't have it yet, the link to it is in the description. You need to go and get that book. It is incredible. Um, so I have I have Alicia Oglesby and Rebecca Atkins. They're down there right now. Let me tell you before we get into telling you how to interrupt racism, because we're going to get into it. But let me tell you a little bit who, about who I am. So today I actually just entered my 16th year in education. So this is year 16. I've been everything like I mean, I've been a substitute, a permanent sub, a teacher, school counselor, school counselor of the year, president of Illinois School Council Association. And now I'm an administrator. But today I have two incredible stories that I want to share with you. And I can't I, I, I literally I've waited before I even brought them on here to make sure that I was good enough to even have them on here. So uh, I want you all to give a warm uh, round of applause to let me see if I could undo what I was just doing to Rebecca Atkins and Alicia Oglesby. How are y'all doing today? Y'all are on mute right now. Good. <laughs> yeah. How are you doing? I'm awesome. I'm awesome. I'm so glad to be here with you. Well, I guess we could maybe just go in order, you know, because this is my first time, y'all. My first time having two guests on here. So, Rebecca, why don't you go first? Why don't you tell them exactly who you are, you know? So, I am Rebecca Atkins, and I am Senior Administrator for School Counseling in Wake County Public Schools, which is in Raleigh, North Carolina. Okay. And then what about you, Alicia? So I am an assistant director of college counseling at Winchester Thurston School, which is located in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I'm also in my first year as secretary for the Pennsylvania School Counselors Association. So I'm really excited to be back in PA after spending some time down in the D.C., Maryland and Virginia area. Yeah, so and, and I don't, I'm just gonna let y'all in on a secret. Like, I if I could ever bring her to Illinois, I would. <laughs> and then Rebecca, Rebecca, you're in North Carolina, right? Yep, in North, in North Carolina. Right. So today's topic is how to interrupt racism. Like, so this book is wildly pop popular in the school council world. I mean, like the concept itself uh, is just really incredible. Like, can you tell us, like, you know? Uh, maybe Alicia this time go first. Like, how did y'all come together and uh, and get together on this book? Yeah, so our story, we often tell this story. It's a great story. Um, it's a modern day story about how Rebecca and I, I think we think that we were participating in school counselor chats for Twitter. So we were both on Twitter, social media, um, and sharing some similar ideas or saying some things uh, that seemed like we were invested in similar work, which essentially was anti-racism work. And this was back in 2015, maybe. Um, and so having these conversations with each other, I think we just somehow it snowballed into uh, us deciding that we were going to present together or at least submit a proposal to present together in New Orleans at um, Ask, Ask a National Conference in New Orleans back in 2016. And thankfully, our proposal was accepted and we presented to a packed room, um, which was also incredibly exciting because I think that it showed us so many people care about this topic. So many school counselors really want to do right by their students. 
Um, and so, you know, after our presentation, which was really successful, and we had a lot of great feedback about it, um, some publishers approached Rebecca and, and asked her if she was interested in, in writing a book, essentially, about the presentation that we had just given. Um, and so I think both of us were kind of like, what? Like, first of all, this is the first time that we're meeting in person. <laughs> this is the first time that we've ever presented together. And we're really just talking about our experience as school counselors. And Rebecca um, has been in the K-8 to world for a while. And I was in the secondary school world for a while. And combining our uh, brains and our experiences, we had to, we, you know, just decided that we were going to say yes and say yes to the book. So we wrote it. Uh, it was on Google Docs. <laughs> yeah, on Google Docs. It was, it was a challenge, but I think we're pretty proud of it despite some of the, some of the few minor, minor flaws here and there. I think we are super, super proud of it. What about you, Rebecca? What did, what do you, what do you think? Like, how did it all happen? Like, like from your perspective, like how did this all kind of come together? Well, exactly like Alicia said, and I think, you know, at the very beginning, it was like, can we work together? Like, we don't even know each other that well. But over <laughs> over all this time, we've become honestly true friends and enjoy talking to one another and checking in with one another. And um, I think, too, when they asked, they did come to me first about the book, I think just because my name was first on the program, not for any special reason. And um, I was like, you want me to write a book about equity? And I will always say that I'm I'm not the expert in equity or anti-racism work, but I am a school counselor who is working really hard to try to figure out how to do this in a different way so that we can um, be there for all students and we can um, diminish or lower the opportunity gaps that some of our students face. So um, I said to the publisher, like, I, I mean, don't you need somebody who is, an expert. And he said, no, we really like to have practitioners speak from their point of view. And that really spoke to me as like, we're in this journey right alongside all of the people who read the book and all the people that we talk to on our conferences and everything. We are walking that journey too and figuring it out along the way because no one has the answer completely. Mm -hmm. That's right. Oh, Charlie, you're Man, I keep doing it. So um, it, I totally agree. Like none of us have like the answers like all figured out. If anyone tells you that they are totally lying, like there are so many different components and so many different situations. Every yeah. school is different. Every child's different. Every mm -hmm. community is different. So and I think that's important, uh, like especially like for this topic, because the book is called Interrupting Racism. It's not called Ending Racism. So like what like what is the uh, like the like I guess like why did you decide on Interrupting Racism? I guess this time we'll start with Rebecca. I think Alicia really came up with the interrupting racism, but I, I, do, I don't know. I think you did. Let's either go one of y'all, like either one of y'all, could just talk about this okay. one. Then. <laughs> well, I just like that it's it's um, it's something in the in middle of action, right? Like like you said, it will never be done. And someone actually wrote a review on our book in some site. I don't remember which one, and they said, "Nice book, but racism will never be over," or something like that. It's like. Yeah, unfortunately, in all of our lives, that's not probably on the table, not even probably, that's just not on the table. Right. But it, I think that to do the work of a school counselor, if you aren't interrupting racism, then you're actually not doing the work of a school counselor. Like that is our purpose in a school um, is to help 
all students achieve their goals, their goals, not our goals for them. And um, racism is such a part of the system that we are in that if we're not interrupting it actively on purpose, then we're not doing our job as a school counselor. And I think the ASCA ethical standards they just released, the new updates, um, they've always supported that work, but I think the new updates support that even more explicitly. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then- yeah. Alicia, oh, oops, wait, sorry. And then Alicia, like, yeah, like, like, what, like, what, what was the idea, like, I guess, behind interrupting racism for you, like, you know, since Rebecca said you might have created the concept. Yeah, I think you know, um, I really appreciate that action-oriented focus, and you know, so much of our lives, when I think about being a school counselor day in and day out, right, like we're you know, helping students in so many different ways from very simple things like, you know, tie your shoe, you're going to trip and fall to, you know, do you need a tissue to, you know, wipe your tears or like, we're just constantly involved in the daily lives of students. And so um, I really appreciate it. Just that visual of interrupting, like as something is happening, because we know that it does happen. It happens in our schools. It happens in our communities. It happens in society. And we need more interrupters. We need more people to step up and be courageous and say, hold on a second, something, you know, we need to pause here or something about this is not okay. Or someone was harmed and we need to like take a moment to address what just happened. Um, And I think, you know, the idea of that and Rebecca often um, paints this picture of the moving sidewalk when you're at the airport, right? Like we take a lot of flights. So Mm -hmm. at least we do now Um, when you're on the moving sidewalk at the airport or wherever else they have moving sidewalks and you just, you know, kind of go with the flow, but interrupting really is, you know, turning around and going the other way. Sometimes you might feel like you're staying in one place. Sometimes you might feel like, you know, you're getting some momentum, Um, but it really is an intentional, thoughtful practice that has many opportunities throughout each day to interrupt because unfortunately racism and many forms of oppression are everywhere. And so, you know, when we're in schools or when we're in board meetings or when we are in parent meetings or when we are on social media, there are so many different ways where we can interrupt that status quo and not just go with the flow and not just accept things that that people give us um, because it, you know, advantages them. But we are really stepping in and saying, hold on a second, this this is not okay. Yeah. And so kind of getting into the book now, I think one of the important parts of the book is the fact that you have like this building foundation component. And so so many of my audience members are not actually educators, but like I try to break things down in a way that the community could understand exactly what we're doing as educators. Um, I think that that's part of the disconnect, like between like society and education and like just in general right now. So like, you know, like the building foundation part, I thought was phenomenal, like just the idea uh, just defining terms so that people could understand. So one of them uh, was like white privilege and how it impacts education. Like, so maybe, uh, you know, Alicia or Rebecca, like whoever feels most comfortable with answering this question first, how does uh, white privilege impact education? Like what is like, what is it doing in education? 
Rebecca wrote that chapter, so (laughs) as she should have. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I think that in the simplest terms, white privilege is just that all of our culture and our cultural norms and everything that goes on in the the world around us in the United States, we could talk about the world, but I'm going to speak where I know the most is the United States, um, is around white cultural norms, white expectations. And when I, as a white person, walk into a space, I don't have to um, think about the way that others perceive me, or um, I don't have to wonder if the way that I normally do things will likely be accepted, because nine times out of 10, it will. And we see that in education, because the things that we value in education, like conformity, like sitting quietly, like um, individualistic kind of competitive type uh, assignments, they tend to be based on white cultural norms. And so when we are thinking about white privilege, it's not saying that you don't have any other areas where you don't have privilege. It's saying that by being white, you carry this privilege into many settings, most settings, that allows you to not have to think about the way that you go about that space. And I was recently in a situation where I thought about this. I was at yoga class the other day and um, there's a lot you can talk about yoga with cultural appropriation, et cetera. Well, that's a whole nother podcast, but I was in yoga class and there were several people of color and um, that's unusual. Even though I live in a very diverse area, um, they're usually only white people at yoga. And I remember thinking like, oh, isn't that awesome? Like, I wonder what, is going on because I've been going to this yoga studio for like 10 years, 15 years, a long time. And so I thought, you know, I go into any yoga studio in the whole, whole town and no one's going to look twice at me, but clearly that's not the case for everyone. And so what, I don't know what, I don't know why that was yesterday was different or Sunday was different, but that was yesterday. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> it feels like it was six weeks ago. Um, but I don't normally have to think about that, right? And so if I was a person that didn't really ever think about equity, didn't really like question it, um, I might not have even ever noticed that I was, that there were all white people in the room all the time. So it's this privilege that I carry to be able to either think about or completely ignore the way that race comes into almost all the settings that I go into. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I explained that well. No, you, you did. And then Alicia, do you want to chime in at all about like the chapter or anything? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, um, you know, I think that it's incredibly relevant. I think that it's tough for some folks to to really grasp and understand. I think that, um, you know, I've primarily lived in major cities most of my life, Philly, D.C., now Pittsburgh, and I generally am around um, a lot of people who are fairly liberal and still struggle with the idea of white fragility, um, white identity, and what all of that means. Um, Another example is I was in um, orientation for for work this week. Like we have all of our professional development activities that we have to do before school, uh, before students come back. And there's a new white teacher at the school who was talking about his racial identity as a white man and how um, we were having an activity specifically around identity and and the parts of our identity that we choose to be important, the parts of our identity that 
um, other people choose for us to be important. So it was really just interesting for me to hear him um, because I don't often hear white people describe themselves as white. And so I think that that within itself sometimes gives me a clue that someone has, has done the work and has done the self-reflection um, of trying to understand what that identity means, what those privileges mean. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a timely chapter for a very, very, like most parts of the book for a very long time. But I think the more that white folks in particular get on board with that self-reflection, I think the better we all are going to be. Um, we all benefit from each other's self-reflection. And another part of the building blocks that uh, was that uh, was literally placed in that the foundational piece was implicit bias. How does implicit bias impact students, staff members, the community? How does it really play in, like a part in education? Yeah, well, I think it's it's still a, a huge part of that self reflection and that self awareness, right? So self awareness is you know, our, our standards and, and the, the lessons that we help students learn. Um, Self-awareness is huge and, and helping students really better understand um, their strengths, their areas of growth, um, their boundaries, their histories, all of these sorts of things. We're not exempt from that work as educators, as adults, you know, whatever field you might be in. Um, our ability to be self-aware can keep us out of trouble a lot of times knowing you know what our what things make us angry and make us upset and make us sad and being able to manage that and navigate that right we're expected to do that as adults and and students are expected to learn those things through through their educate through their formal education or you know throughout their home life or in their communities somehow we're, we're all expected to learn how to manage ourselves and understand ourselves. Um, and so I think that it's a, it's a huge part of understanding who you are as a person in terms of your privileges, your biases, your perspectives, um, and the things that, you know, just make us who we are. But not only that, to understand the work that we need to do on ourselves, right? No one, no one is exempt from that self-work either. We all have things that we need to better understand about, you know, our, our perceptions and our prejudices. We all have those. And so to understand them, I think, helps prepare us to interact with other people, to get along with other people. You know, when, when I'm working with students who don't have any friends or are, you know, having a rough time making friends and keeping friends and managing friendships and relationships. There's often a lot of self-awareness that needs to happen. Um, and part of that, I think, is, is understanding your biases, um, understanding what, you know, you believe to be true about certain groups of people and what informs those beliefs. Uh, so I think, you know, it's, it's just important to understand for just being a, a human being on this planet with lots of other human beings. Um, but I think in terms of our school counseling work, it's important for us to, to model um, what we want to see in students. And then Rebecca, do you want to chime in? Yeah, I think um, as educators, we are often, or not often, are always gatekeepers for students. So we um, 
are in charge of what they're exposed to at school, what opportunities they have at school, what access to rigor they have at school. And if we are experiencing implicit bias and we're not doing that self-reflection that Alicia was just talking about, we may not notice that we really are not giving the same shake to everybody for lack of a better way to put it, that we are deciding before the, the student even has an opportunity to show what they know or what they can know that they can or cannot do something. And I think there are so many stories, particularly of how school counselors have been gatekeepers for people. I mean, so many people have stories about my counselors that I couldn't apply to this school or my counselors that I would never get into that school. And so when we think about implicit bias, we have this um, responsibility to think about what we can do to counter that bias all the time and to question and interrogate the way that we are approaching the students. Um, would we have said the same thing if the student was a boy? Would we have said the same thing if the student was white? Would we have said the same thing if the student was well off? Um, if we're not interrogating that, then we absolutely are falling uh, prey to bias because we live in a culture that is biased. There's no way that we don't have those biases internalized as well. Mm -hmm. Can I add to that? Because absolutely. that made me think of, um, I don't know if y'all saw this on Netflix, but um, Laura Ross, shout out to Laura, gave the suggestion of, or she just said that she watched this um, docu-series on Netflix about Woodstock in 1999. Did either of y'all see that? No. Nope. Okay. I so, it. okay. I saw a thing about it. Yeah. And I vaguely remember it back from high school days of when it was going to happen. Um, vaguely. And I just remember MTV being involved, that sort of thing. So anyway, the point that I want to make about that is I often watch these documentaries and these specials that come on and I think what would happen if these people were black or what mm. would happen if these people were you know Latino or or whatever you know um, anything other than typically white in these particular docu-series because I mean it was it was an absolute mess I mean it was just the the and they were you know mostly teenagers and young adults so of course it was going to be a little chaotic right that's developmentally appropriate um but it just it was taken way too far and people were hurt and all sorts of really blasphemous things were happening over the course of these three days and the reaction was you know oh that's unfortunate well it'll be over soon Right. Like a few police were brought in the very, very last day and it was like, OK, get out of here. Right. Like it wasn't this overreaction mm -hmm. that that sometimes black and brown communities will see and expect um, when they, you know, demonstrate very similar behavior. So that just made me think of that. And it's kind of like, you know, this this mental thing that I do every time I see something along those lines, I think, OK, that that would have been a totally different outcome had it been half a quarter million black people gathered for a concert. I think yeah, about I that all the time. Like, people yeah. would be in jail. People would be in jail. Yeah, like, people would be dead. yeah. Right. for that. sure. Yeah. For sure. Yep. For sure. So, so we have a really good question uh, from Council with Mr. B, my boy, John Burnett. Thank you so much for the question. I really appreciate you. He's oh, also, God. if you have not followed him yet on YouTube, 
He is an amazing content creator for school counselors. Tips, tricks, reels. Like, I mean, like on IG, his Twitter, everything is phenomenal. So, like, he is a pro's pro. Uh, but he has a really good question. Can you share tips and advice for counselors who are not in schools or districts that encourage equity work? And that's a, a big deal right now. I mean, I saw that um, uh, Jennifer Susco and uh, Steve Sharp, like, you know, like they had to put out statements and so did Jill Cook. I mean, there's a lot going on, like within like communities uh, and some school counselors are supported. Like Steve was in the article, and, but, you know, Jennifer, maybe not so much. Uh, what what tips and advice would you have for a school counselor in that situation? Well, I think that um, this is the work, right? So it sort of depends on what your personal climate is in your district. If it's, you can do the work, but just don't call it equity. Or if it's really, really strict and you're having to walk a very narrow line. So we can say, oh, get out there, do this, but you have to feed your family. All kids deserve school counselors and, you know, even kids that go to school in districts that don't encourage equity. So I think that depending on where you are, you start with individuals. So advocating and doing right by individual students can be somewhat easier to do in that environment, I think, because then you're just talking about a kid. Um, so you're noticing the inequities, you're noticing the systemic issues, but instead of saying, hey, this is a systemic issue, we're going to maybe approach it from a more individual point of view. Um, and then I think as far as you can push that with being the one to bring up questions to ask, why do we do it this way? Maybe in your environment, you can't say, why do we do it this way? It negatively impacts students of color, but you could say, why do we do it this way? I think it might be more helpful to do it that way. So I, I think it's really hard. And I, I feel lucky that I don't personally work in a situation like that. Um, but I think it's like figuring out where you do have some push and pull. And the longer you're in a place, the more kind of um, capital you have to be able to speak up for change, and to use that capital to the best of your ability to make a difference for students. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What would you yeah. say, Alicia? I totally agree. Um, and I think, you know, professionally, I have also been really fortunate to work in school districts and in school buildings that have been supportive of my work and the school counseling team's work. Um, I think very specifically at my last school that was in um, a slightly conservative community, I had the support in, in whatever I decided to do. Um, from my counseling team and from the assistant principals and from the principal. And I think that it was always open communication between myself and administrators in particular, um, because I knew that if, you know, I was going to get in trouble for something or if parents were going to call and be upset about something, they were going to go to my administrators. So I always wanted to be the first to share with them um, a particular lesson or, you know, sometimes I would create vision boards or bulletin boards that were very equity focused um, and very multicultural. And so I would let the principal know, like, this is what I'm doing. I would let the counseling team know, like, hey, this is this is my plan so that they would know ahead of time and they would never be surprised by a particular phone call that they would receive. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's it's. It's not common for, for school counselors to use certain terms with students. Like, 
I've never in 10 years of being a school counselor have ever said anything about critical race theory to any of my students ever. Um, but I will talk to them about being fair and what it means to be fair. I will talk to them about um, you know, how some groups of people might be treated differently for any particular reason, right? Not just race, but um, ability or language or, you know, wherever their, their home country is or their parents' home country is. Um, and so we'll explore these topics together. Um, but I think that ultimately, you know, one, if, if parents or guardians want a call to be upset about something, then you know, it's important to, to work with them to figure out what they're really upset about and get to the heart of the matter. And that's, you know, my administration has always, every school where I've worked, the administration has been really skilled at, at working with parents around that. Um, and I don't think that's ever going to change. But ultimately, I think that school counselors who are in some hostile environments um, really just need to be honest about the communities that they're in. Um, walk that fine line, protect yourself, protect your career, um, but also know that students need you to show up and students need you to really help them explore who they are, you know, who their communities are, um, and to really work to just be their best selves. And sometimes that's going to be a mismatch, um, but hopefully, you know, your administrators will will have your back. Yep. And then I, I want to chime in really quickly, too, because, I mean, I've also worked in very supportive districts, too. But I think the way that I would do it, you know, and I've, I've read quite a bit about it, too, like, you know, different situ situations where there really wasn't that support. I think the first step would be like identifying allies like within the mm -hmm. building, just taking the slow approach. Like you don't have to rush to solve the problem right away. You could literally take your time, build allies, build alliances, like gain consensus. Uh, within mm -hmm. the building, uh, one of the most important ways that you can gain consistency is utilizing data. Uh, look at uh, your school report card, like, you know, and build a story. Like, you can't just throw a bunch of data at someone and expect them to get exactly where you're coming from. You want to literally, like, piece the story together. You know, like, say, for example, if the test scores have been the same, uh, if there's been disproportionality, like, amongst, the, like, the scores or, like, the class placements for mm -hmm. years, like, you can literally show that to an administrator and show where it starts. Hey, it starts here. Or if there's like disciplinary issues and it's not getting any better, then what what, what are we doing as educators if we're not doing anything to rectify right. the situation? Like, can we get 1% better here? Like, what can we do? Where can we bend to make things slightly better for children? I think so many times we try to say, like, we're going to just fix everything. And that's unrealistic because you're going fi to face a tremendous amount of pushback. And you might not be totally right, but the idea, mm -hmm. I think the best practice is to try to get 1% better, get a little bit percent better. Like, you know, all the time, try to find little things that you could tweak uh, over the course of time. And then when possible, because sometimes it's not possible because we don't want to put students in uh, harm's way. But if you can utilize student voice, especially like when it comes to advocating to, to like for the board, like, you know, with board or with uh, administrators. I mean, mm -hmm. a lot of times if you hear like a student's voice about how they feel and like sometimes it might even be like from a survey like we did. So we're doing a training tomorrow at our school and we're going to talk about how students like, you know, for in our school, like black students might think things are slightly different. They're not saying that they're necessarily worse or, mm -hmm. or, you know, or bad or anything, but they're saying that it's slightly different. How can we make things the same? Like, how can we gradually get there? I think mm -hmm. that's a, a really important way of doing that. But thank yeah. you so much for the question, John. I love, I, I always, well, I always will champion student voice and advocating for student voice because if it weren't for them, we wouldn't be there. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. Our, our job is to educate students like that. Is, that is literally it. We also <laughs> have another really great uh, question uh, or, or statement. Um, a recent Yale study showed that black boys were watched uh, more for misbehaviors by pre-K teachers mm-hmm. than the other children at the table. Those implicit biases show up early. I mean, they do. Yeah. Yeah, and add to that, that my experience shows that not only might we be looking more for misbehavior, but that white students are more likely to get the, oh, you know, whatever, it's not that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. Um, I've heard of of districts that look at their suspension data to determine if the, the students who are being suspended were suspended for quote unquote, appropriate suspensions. And they find that, yeah, they are. So does that mean that Black students just do more inappropriate things? I would say no. I would say that a lot of white kids got away with doing the same stuff and didn't get written up. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my experience in walking around a school. Is sometimes we make excuses like, oh, they're just being silly. They're just playing around um, for some kids. And we don't make those same excuses for other kids. So I think it's like a two, two-sided coin as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think um, that it's, you know, sometimes we settle on the well intentions of of our colleagues and um, not really knowing how to approach that conversation, right? Like I I can tell you which teachers send the most referrals. I could tell you which teachers um, send the most referrals of black students. I could tell you which students um, are constantly being sent to the assistant principal's office Um, for behavior that other students are also exhibiting. And so, you know, we know within our buildings, we know, and it's, it's not a secret, we can, you know, pretty easily collect that data and share that data. And then it's a matter of how do we approach this? And and how do we make sure that all of our teachers understand that this is real? And even though they may be well-intentioned, and they may you know, um, believe that they love all of their students and, and get along with all of their students, there, there might be some bias showing up um, and that there likely is some bias showing up. And again, going back to the point of how to, dim- how to diminish that as much as possible um, so that our, our students are not being negatively affected by that is, is really the heart of the work. Yeah, and I, I totally agree. I think that we also, you know, like, so like after we pointed out, I think we, we need to start digging in and trying to find some solutions too. like, you know, like I think that there might be some interventions uh, that we could have, like, you know, for like the students and for the teachers, you know, like as administrators, I'm just thinking like, you know, like what can we do uh, when it comes to like sitting down beside the teacher and saying, hey, like this is going on. I think it's important, especially when we're talking about implicit bias. A lot of times this is something that you might not even recognize or know. So I think that we need to um, call people, uh, call people in, you know what I mean? As, as well as call people out, like if it's, if it's deserved, call them out. But, you know, as an administrator, I think it's really important to call people in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, just to, to bring in community help, uh, build understanding, to provide training, uh, conversations, uh, like especially like as an administrator, like we do a lot of peer coaching, like sometimes like right. sitting outside a teacher and trying to help them out with that. So I think yeah. that's also important. Yeah. And so and maybe y'all can answer this for me because y'all are y'all are district leaders. I haven't been at that level. Um, But something that I noticed that that does happen a lot is, you know, the the faculty and staff are aware of some of these issues. Counselors are aware of of some of these issues. Right. Where we're disaggregating data and we're picking things apart. Um, And then we all get the PD. Right. 
all of us sit in the two hour um, training about cultural sensitivity, like we all get the same uh, sort of response and reaction. And I, I guess maybe I wouldn't know if the principal is directly working with particular educators in the building on these issues because maybe they wouldn't wouldn't share that with the counseling team. Um, but I'm curious if if that if that happens or if that should be happening, because I know sometimes there's the issue of people feeling singled out. Um, but if I can show you, you know, Miss, you know, Mr. X chemistry teacher has sent 45 referrals, which is 25 more than any other teacher in the building. And they are like disproportionately black male students, right? Can somebody talk to Mr. X chemistry teacher or do we all have to get the PD every other month. So I think the PD, like the district-wide PD, is really just checking a box. Um, a lot of times, and I'm not saying every administrator does this because this is a, a scary thing, man. Like we literally go as administrators, we go through training, uh, like on having like difficult conversations with staff members. Okay. Uh, one of my like my, my biggest things uh, when I, I have a conversation like that with a teacher, like I was saying earlier, like I try to uh, talk to them like it's a partnership. Like, hey, like you know, I see that this is happening. I'm not necessarily saying you're a bad person, but what can we do to address this? How can I help you? How could I be a, a, a supporter and a champion of you and the causes that you have in your classroom so that we could change this? Um, I think that it's not helpful as a leader sometimes to just wield the hammer um, because you could crush someone. And I don't, I don't I don't think that's the right way to do it. I think that the right way, like for me anyway, is to sit down beside a teacher, show them what the facts are and then have them explain to me like what do what do you see so now you're doing the self-reflection that we talked about what we're going to talk about in just a second like have them reflect upon it what do you see and then what can i do you know like to help you like how could i support you all right like you know can we run some interventions can i uh, work with the school counselors like what resources do we have can we build uh relationships with the parents uh so that we could be allies you know like not necessarily calling we don't want to call parents and say hey your kid's bad like, that's not going to be effective. Like, we want to call them just like I'm talking to you today. Like, we want to talk to the parents as partners because we're all in this and we have the child's best interest at heart. And ultimately, that's what we want out of this. Mm -hmm. And then, Rebecca, what did you think? I know she also asked you, too. I'm sorry. No, no. I, I mean, I think that rarely happens around race. If I'm being honest, we have over 200 schools in our school district and I don't think I've ever heard of someone having a very blunt conversation around race. Um, I think that we oft, often couch it in other things. So if we have a bunch of referrals and they tend to be students of color, we might just talk about the referrals, but we don't talk about it being students of color most of the time. I'm sure there's exceptions to that, but um, I think that people are so uncomfortable talking about race that um, we can maybe talk about it in like problem solving meetings when we're talking about like demographic kind of broad data, but getting down to specifically talking to one teacher about one pattern you see, I bet that rarely happens. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's a tremendously uh, challenging thing to do for a lot of people <laughs> because it's scary. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's scary, not only just because, you know, just because of the fact that you're talking about race, but it's also like the fact that, you know, just for example, like with me, like if I, if I came in too strong, like you might, like the teacher might think that I'm calling them racist and shut down completely. Mm -hmm. And now there's no longer a partnership, a working partnership with it. So I think it's like really, a, it's a really difficult balancing act as an administrator, like to, cause you want to support the teacher, but at the same time, like you have to call out the specific behavior, mm -hmm. even if it's very uncomfortable. And I, and I've already done it 
once this year. <laughs> I'm proud of you. That's awesome. But I mean, I think if we tallied how many principals all three of us have had in our entire careers, yeah, how many real evaluative, two-sided, supportive, pushing you, challenging you evaluation meetings have you ever had? I'll tell you how many I've had. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Yeah, I can agree with that. I, I mean, I, I think a lot of people would, would dodge that. Yeah. To be honest with you. Maybe one. Yeah. But I, <laughs> but, I, but I will say this. Like, if it was something apparent, I would expect, you know, because, like, this is also my second year as an administrator. Mm-hmm. I would expect the private conversation to happen. But, I mean, I could also see some people, like, you know, because there's a lot of conflict avoiding people. And they would definitely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, and some of them are leaders, you know, and like, oh, they, yeah. they literally duck that conversation. Oh, yeah. For me, like, I'm literally like, I just got to go to yeah. yeah, they're checking your little rubric thing and then they're like, OK, there you go. You sign it. Yeah. So you don't even have a conversation about it. I, I mean, I don't think that the evaluative process for most folks is something that they grow from in general. Right. So now we want to put like the hardest topic for anybody to talk about into that conversation. Right. I, I just, yeah. And I don't, and I don't want to, you know, I know that so much of our book and so much of our work and when we present so much of what we present really is about the system, the system as a whole. So, you know, I don't want to draw too much focus on individual educators, um, but I guess the line can be drawn, right, between the system allowing these things to happen on an individual basis um, and needing to, but once, maybe if, once we change that system and what the system allows and doesn't allow, that's naturally and organically going to affect what individual educators can and cannot do. So totally, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think probably every counselor has had a kid that has come to you and said that teacher is racist. And right. oh yeah, said, oh yeah, yeah, they are. Oh yeah, like- and, I, and, and <laughs> right. And my reaction is usually like, I can't. I can't necessarily agree with you, but I'm not going to disagree. Right? right. I mean, there are times when I've sat there and thought, and I work with elementary schoolers and right. they you notice and they're 10. Right. I mean, you know, like yes. kids know. They know. That's true. They yeah. Know. I, I really don't disagree with it. I think that um, the, the entire model for evaluating people, and I was just saying this today, I think it literally needs to be reevaluated. I think it's, um, it's no too arbitrary. Too. It's way too arbitrary. <laughs> And I think the sheer number of staff members that a, a, a small group of administrators are like evaluating might be way too high for it to be meaningful in the way that we need it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that because um, I was also a teacher, um, I realized that teachers a lot of times like, you know, you could be sensitive like to what's going on in the classroom because like you're in your silo, you're trying your hardest. And then there's someone that just pops in periodically and you're telling right. me that everything that I like you, but you weren't there, you know, like two days right. ago when I was cooking, but now you want to come over here and you want to tell me what I'm doing in my classroom. Like, you know, I mean, I get it. You know, I, I totally get how they feel, you know? So yeah. I just think that we need to maybe rework it. I know like Charlotte Danielson has been a big deal for like a long time, especially in the state of Illinois, everyone has to use it, but mm. I think it's time for a new model. Mm-hmm. Agree. Yeah. 
So um, also before I move move to the next uh, topic, I got a couple of things just to, to hit. Like, thank you so much, Rogue Four, for the five dollar super chat. I, I I totally appreciate it. Um, anyone that donates to the channel, I promise you, all of this is going back into the lighting, the internet, all of this stuff that helps <laughs> to make the channel work smoothly. Like, I'm not gonna get rich off of this. I really don't make a dime off of it. So thank you so much, like, for supporting the channel. All of this is going back to the channel. So and then we also have a comment. Uh, from uh, Councilman Mr. B. That's a great response, uh, Rebecca. There are some states and districts that are more strict or conservative. And thanks, Alicia. So thank you. Uh, thank you, John. He also said, I agree, real. I've tried the same approach when I was in AP and it worked for sure. I think the gradual approach, I mean, oh man. And I know like, you know, like when, you know, you it's burning up inside of you, you want change. Like to look at the gradual approach, like, oh man, mm -hmm. like, I want this fixed now. Mm -hmm. Like this is a problem. Like why can't we just mm -hmm. fix it? But a lot of times, like if you do a quick fix, it's not sustainable. Uh, mm -hmm. One person leaves it and goes away. I think mm -hmm. just the gradual over time of building practices, best practices. I think that's ultimately the best way to go. Um, so let's transition really quickly into chapter two. So chapter two is build and change. Who wrote who wrote the build and change chapter? Did I write that? Well, <laughs> I think, I think you might have wrote that. Showing one. how long it's been since we. I, I know this book has been out for a while, and it, it, it's yes. still buzzing. It's still buzzing. At the oh, ASCA right. conference last year, the room was packed. I mean, all of us were in there. Like it, anyone, it was like the who's who of uh, school counselors uh, in the room with whenever they present. So That's awesome. uh, maybe we just, we just kick it out. Because uh, Alicia, you were talking about self-reflection. So this chapter really uh, talks about self-reflection. Oh, yeah. That's what Alicia definitely wrote that one. That was mine. Yeah. So, so why did, for you, like, why was self-reflection, like, first, and then going maybe into staff reflection, why was that so important for you? I think because... Um, because honestly, when I first became a school counselor, I had incredible mentorship. Um, so I was trained in Philly, Philly public school system. Um, I had incredible mentors, shout out to Ruth Garcia and Tatiana Olmedo, um, who really were just phenomenal leaders and engaged and also incredibly self-aware. So the conversations that we would have were not only uh, part of my practicum and internship process and assignments that I had to do, but we just had really in-depth conversations about who I was as a person, why I wanted to do this work, what was important to me about working with children um, and so it just, it was just very fulfilling, honestly. And so, you know, I thought about it as I was entering the field and the school year sort of just took off and led me wherever I was going and it went by so quickly and I had to make decisions on the fly. Um, and I had to interact with students of all backgrounds, all ethnicities, all religions, multiple languages, um, different socio, like very, my first school was incredibly diverse um, in every way that you can possibly imagine. And so I think when I wrote the chapter, it was really a reflection of what I believe to be important because the school year, like it can just send you like in a current. It reminds me of a current. It just pulls you along. 
Um, and if you're not intentional and if you're not thoughtful about what's happening, why it's happening, who it's happening to and how it affects you as a person, um, you can burn out. You can make really big mistakes. You can offend people. Um, you can do things that are not aligned with you know, the work that we're supposed to be doing. Um, and I, maybe it's the nature also of working with children. It can really pull you into their world while not necessarily forcing you to reflect on your own, um, your own world and your own perspectives and your own beliefs. And so I think, you know, I've always also been a person who has journaled and who has been fairly introspective throughout my life. And so I thought that it was important um, for school counselors, for educators to take that step back and to really think about themselves and center themselves in the work to get a better understanding. Um, I had worked with, in my own education and even as a professional, um, educators who were inspiring. I worked with educators who were mean and nasty. Um, and so it was kind of like, you know, if I had to, if I had to influence and impact this profession, I definitely would want to influence other educators and school counselors to be those inspiring and, um, you know, just giving, caring individuals. And I think that we can be those professionals um, when we're intentional about our self-care, when we're intentional about our boundaries, when we are intentional about, you know, paying attention to when we're having a bad day, right? So I can tell my students, like, listen, Ms. Oglesby had a weekend, okay? And I need, like, 15 to 20 minutes to get my whole life together. That just happens to be during first period. <laughs> Y'all are my first period seminar. Um, but students respect that. And students can honor that. And students can be honest. Like, Ms. Oglesby, I had a bad day, too. Or Friday was a bad day for me, right? And not just think like, oh, Ms. Oglesby has an attitude and we have no idea why or personalizing things. Um, and I can do that because I'm self-reflective, because I'm honest about my own emotions and my own difficulties um, and, and my, own, you know, my own thoughts about things. And so that's why it was important to me. And I hope that it is something that educators and school counselors can really build into their habit as a regular practice, um, because I just think that it's, it's vital to our work. Yep. And then uh, Rebecca, would you like to chime in? Like, how has the reflection played a role in your practice, you know, as an educator? I mean, you've grown so much. You're a district leader now. So I, I imagine, like, I mean, I've grown a lot just off of self-reflection, so I can only imagine how much reflection you've done. Well, I think as a white person, it's really important for me to stop and self-reflect because I can move about the world without ever reflecting on the way that race plays in. And I think I was thinking when Alicia was talking, like when I first started in my career, I felt like there was a set of skills that I had that I brought to the table. And it never occurred to me that when I'm sitting across the table from a student that they see me as like a white lady. Like that just never occurred to me when I was 24 or whatever. And I worked in a school that was by far predominantly students of color. And so for me to not even like realize that that, I don't know, has an impact shows how not reflective I was. And I think that as I've grown older and have more experience, I just think so much about 
how people perceive you is such a big part of what you bring to the table. And, and sometimes those perceptions are wrong and, and we can't get too caught up in that, but we do have to self-reflect about what we're presenting and what we're showing and what we're sharing and by the things that we say or we don't say. And we have to self-reflect on what, what our thoughts are bringing to the table. Earlier, we were talking about bias for students. The, the stories we tell about students really impact how we treat them. And the stories that we tell about ourselves really impact how we treat other people. So self-reflection is, is hugely important. Thank you so much. Let me pull everyone back up. So you also spoke in the chapter about um, just staff reflection. Like, so as a staff, so like, how, can you tell the audience, you know, like, what did you mean by like having the entire staff reflect? Is it like, how do you, how do you kind of promote that practice as a leader? Yeah, so I think um, really building it into the culture of the faculty, because, you know, again, so often we have professional development and, you know, even on social media, I follow a lot of teachers, I follow a lot of school counselors, and we can often get frustrated by some of the professional development we're offered because it doesn't feel relevant or it doesn't feel like it really speaks to the moment, right? Like read the room. Um, you know, this is what we're going through. This is what we need. And sometimes that professional development um, is incongruent or it, or it misses the mark. Um, and so I think self-reflection is, is really timeless and it's, and it's really something that is always going to be relevant because we're always interacting with the world in one way or another, right? We're, we're living through this seemingly endless pandemic and the new additions that you know, just kind of pop up out of wherever um, to sort of add to our stress levels as caregivers and as partners and all the roles that we play. And so I think building that staff reflection um, into professional development, into our professional um, learning communities, into, you know, the discussions that we're having in the faculty room or, you know, together over lunch. I think it's just an, another way to really build in that habit for educators to pause, to think, to really connect our work and the work that we're doing day in and day out to ourselves and our own beliefs and our own growth um, to what's happening in the world and, and being honest with students about what's happening all around them, um, being honest with ourselves. You know, one of, one of my proudest moments as, as a school counselor, and I have many, 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 um, was when I was a, um, a high school counselor in Maryland. And on um, January 6th, and I don't remember the day of the week that it was on, maybe a Tuesday or Wednesday or something, um, but we weren't far from, from the Capitol and we weren't far from where everything was happening. Um, and the way that the administrators and the teachers and the counselors came together and the students really to form lessons and have dialogue, um, you know, some students choosing more action-oriented responses um, right after January 6th, really spoke to a staff and, and a faculty that had already been familiar with doing the work of self-reflection. Um, and for teachers to just be so willing to lead those lessons um, and engage in that work with students, literally the very next day, um, just really spoke to how great that work could be. 
And just to kind of follow up on that really quickly. So like, what was it like, you know, like right after like everything happened that you still have to, cause I know we got out of school early that day. Um, I think we had like an Institute day, like professional development. And we got let, let home early that day, which I ended up getting into a really bad, bad uh, car accident, but you know, that's neither. Oh, was that right. day? It was that day. We oh, got let wow. out early and I literally, oh I man, I got tore there. Yeah, it was oh, the exact wow. same day. I was on the way home and I got hit. What is my oh, day? Yeah, I know. Same day. I'll never forget it. Wow. Like, yeah. What What was it like, you know, like in D.C. at that time, like, you know, in the aftermath, of, you know, of that event? Yeah, it was it was chaos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was it was pretty much pure chaos. Um, and we had to you know, we had to be very mindful about when we locked down, um, you know, certain things when they happen within a certain radius of the school. Right. We have to to lock down. I don't think we had to lock down that day. Um, but it was, it was chaos and it was confusion. And, you know, some of our older students were, were really confused about, you know, they're learning that certain things happen within our government and certain processes and, and procedures happen. And so this was completely counter to a lot of what they were learning. Um, so it was very confusing. And so we definitely felt an obligation to, to pause and to discuss and unpack um, so much. And, and I think overall, many of our responses were really, really um, positive and, and strong around that time. Um, but I think, you know, we just had a regular school day and I think the next day was probably a regular school day too. Um, but it, we didn't let that oppor- well, opportunity pass to really pause and, and make sure that everyone felt heard um, and everyone's concerns were were on the table. So I think had we not done so much work prior, it could have been a really ugly situation in terms of the lessons, in terms of the discussion, in terms of students sharing. Um, but we had done so much pre-work as a faculty and a staff on self-reflection, diversity, equity, inclusion, racism, oppression, and so many members of our faculty and staff really, really understood it and really got it and were willing to do that work ongoing, that I think that really just was why it was as successful. And our students, too, had done a lot of that work, um, which is why it was as successful as it was. And then speaking of stories, like, that's kind of what the next chapter goes into, um, so, Rebecca, like, I mean, there's so many incredible stories in the building capacity uh, chapter of, you know, just tremendous leaders across the country actually doing the work. If that was one story in that chapter that really stuck out to you when you, you when you all were writing it, what would this story be? Well, um, the story of the anti-bias lessons from Sycamore Creek, I worked very closely with that counselor that that school is in my district. She's since moved away. Uh, her husband is in the military, and so they move a bunch. But um, just the way that she built up this idea of anti-bias lessons, of working with students, of really looking at the core before we go into intervention. And she worked in a extremely affluent, predominantly white school and noticed that the students of color and not just students of color, also students with disabilities um, and uh, were not being accepted by the other kids in the in the school and felt kind of 
othered for lack of a better word, because there were just a very few, like maybe two or three kids of color in an entire grade level. And this was a very large school. So they probably had, I don't know, eight or nine classes on a grade level. So um, just, I got to work with her really closely in that. And that was um, really meaningful to me. We did uh, professional development with her staff. We created the lessons together, the lessons that you see outlined in the, the lesson chapter. Um, we, we really thought through what does it mean to make an inclusive environment for everyone? Um, and I think that was very powerful and meaningful and would have been extremely easy to just skip in that situation because the loudest voices in that school are certainly the, not the students of color. So we could have just kind of been like, oh, everything's going fine. Their, their numbers look fine. Their data looks fine. But the lived experience as sub students uh, didn't match that kind of outward uh, appearance. Yep, thank you. And then um, Alicia, what, like, what story really resonated with you, you know, um, you know, from that chapter? I don't think I wrote any of the stories. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> okay, so you didn't write the stories. All right. <laughs> Notes of this book before we came to this. <laughs> <laughs> but you were ready. You were ready. I yeah, love I'm it. Ready. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but you know, and then so the next thing that you kind of get into, you know, just kind of you know moving forward, uh, it kind of talks about uh, using data to promote change. Um, you know, and we kind of talked about that a little bit, but from your perspective as you know a school counseling leader, you know, at the district level, and for people that don't know, like her district is enormous you know like it is not a little district they do not just have so my district we have maybe like eight school counselors now we started with four when i first got there and now we we doubled it so that means we have eight um but in her district i mean how many school counselors do you have again about 500 500 you eight I, we have eight she has 500 <laughs> <laughs> Oh. But it's not just me. I I work with a whole team. You right. Know, you work with a team. team. You work with a team, but you're in the district office and you're kind of, you know, like kind of doing a lot of things, you know, behind the scenes. So like what, like how from the district level uh, do you use data, you know, like from all these different schools and all of it to promote change? Well, I think that um, really at a district level, what we can do is talk about how to use data because it's pretty hard when you have, uh, well, we have 109, well, 200 schools, I think this year. We have so many schools, I don't know how many schools we have, but um, we're opening three this year. So I think that takes us to 200. So I can't look at 200 schools and start to notice patterns of data myself. Now we are lucky enough because we're such a big district, we have like a data and accountability department that looks at some of that. But for me, Rebecca, what I do is talk with schools about how to look at their data, how to have conversations about data as a school counselor. And I always suggest for people to start with their SIP plan, whatever you call it in your district, school improvement plan, whatever that is called where you are, because a group of people who know a lot about your school, a group of stakeholders have already sat down and said, these are our most important things, but don't look at it and think, oh, you know, I need to do some math tutoring because that's not what I'm there to do. I love math and I actually really like math and I would love to tutor somebody in math, but that's not what I was hired for. So what I do is I look at that SIP plan and I think, what are the school counseling things 
I can do to support this SIP plan. And then pick a few things of data that you're going to look at and really hone in on those. And don't, most schools have so much data at their fingertips that you can quickly just become completely overwhelmed with it. So start with your SIP plan and then pick a few pieces of data and stick with those and don't try to look at all of it. The other thing that you can do if the SIP plan isn't quite getting it for you is you can think about what are things that I noticed. I was just talking about the lived experiences of our students. So with that example I gave, in our district, we give a student survey. I bet if the counselor said, God, I'm hearing from my students of color, they don't feel included. I bet if they looked at the student survey, they would see data points that would have supported that kind of anecdotal um, observation she had. So you can do it two ways, SIP plan one and two, asking questions based on the observations you've made and then narrow it down to like three to five data points you're going to look at and forget the rest for now because you cannot do all of it. Totally agree. Like you can't, you literally can't do, there's so much data available. And like a lot of times what ends up happening when people have, like they try to use all of it, you end up having data for the sake of having data and no action ever really comes out of, you know, as a result of that. Um, Alicia, would you like to chime in at all about that? You're not saying that you have to, not putting any pressure on you. <laughs> yeah, no pressure. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think Rebecca covered it beautifully. That's, you know, that's her wheelhouse. She knows data in and out. So for sure. For sure. We, we also have a question. Uh, is allowing parents to contest library books and approving reading lists and class curriculum uh, curriculums helpful or hurtful to the mission of interrupting racism? Uh, anyone of you want to step out? Yeah, I can start <laughs> with that one. One, because and so this is also me uh, recognizing my bias. I am a super fan of librarians. And um, I have worked with many librarians throughout my career, and pretty much all of them have been incredible and amazing, and also champions of this work. I'm not sure how, I mean, I have ideas and theories about how it aligns and overlaps, but that being said, um, you know, definitely wanting parents to be, um, involved in healthy ways, um, work with the school in various ways to you know, help support the school's mission and the school's vision. Um, no to uh, getting to decide or have any uh, say in what books are in the library. Um, and even for, I mean, even for parents who are educators, right? Because some of our parents are teachers, some of our parents are professors and, um, you know, school counselors in, in many different ways, you know, they might be educators. Um, however, our school, you know, goes to great lengths to create a cohesive learning environment. And so the books that are in our library complement the reading list, complement the curriculum, um, so sort of all of it works together in a way that is especially curated by the faculty and staff of that school. And so um, hopefully the administrators will have good relationships with parents um, and the, you know, the parent groups that are at the school and the school board and all the folks who are involved with sort of helping to support the school's mission. Um, but you know, in that sort of the minutia, the books that are in the library 
you know, the books that are on display for a particular month or celebration, um, the work that's specifically being done in the classroom that is tied to um, larger requirements for the state and all these sorts of things. Um, no to parents being, uh, you know, indirectly allowed to sort of affect any and all of those things. So that's my short answer for that question. Let's see. And Rebecca, would you like to chime in on that? I literally got out my notebook to try to find my notes because, again, <laughs> I did not come adequately prepared for these tough things. <laughs> um, but I've been researching this because I'm just a curious person and I like to know about the world. And there's a Supreme Court decision about... Um, I don't, I don't know the name of the people, the so-and-so yeah, versus so-and-so. It's all good. Yeah, it's all good. What'd you say? It's all good. Okay. But there's a decision that, that basically says that while that parents have the guiding light in their children's education, that they cannot nitpick what they choose to what their children learn in school. Mm -hmm. um, and somebody who's a lawyer could talk more about that than me, but I think this is a big pendulum swing that we've seen. Like, for example, I remember when I was at one of the schools I worked at, um, third grade fairy tales were part of our North Carolina standard course of study back then. I don't know if they still are in third grade. I'd have to research that. But they always had a fairy tale unit. The whole unit was about fairy tales. And this one girl had a religious um, belief that fairy tales were bad and you shouldn't tell them. I'm, I'm not sure. I've never met anyone else that thought that, so I don't know all the details, but essentially we were like, well, this is part of our North Carolina standard. Like it wasn't like this was what we chose to teach the standard. The standard mm -hmm. was fairy tales. Mm -hmm. So we were like, we're going to teach it and she's going to be in class. And then we tried to work with her to make it the best way possible. But at the same time, like we didn't just not teach the whole third grade fairy tales. Right. So like, we're going to work with this student I want you to have your deeply held religious belief, but at the same time, like I can't change that for everyone. Mm -hmm. So I think that we've lost this somehow. And now not this one kid, but now one person might decide that, you know, they don't like books that have uh, two moms in them. And so they're going to throw a big fit. And now nobody can read a book that has two moms. Right. Right. So I, I just, I feel like this pendulum has swung in a way that I don't appreciate. Mm -hmm. And I, and I would like someone who's very knowledgeable about it to explain to me, like I'm a five-year-old, why this Supreme court decision doesn't apply to all these um, banned book things. And, and if I had mm -hmm. to make a guess, this is my, not expert opinion. I think it's because we're allowing it to happen, right? So if the school board were to say, no, this is what we're doing, that Supreme Court decision would be triggered because the school board is saying it. But what is happening is we're going, oh, yeah, you're right. We probably shouldn't have that. Mm. And we're just kind of allowing it to happen. And, and I think it's happening everywhere, even in places that are more open to equity topics, like where I work or the, the community where I live, which is different than the community where I work. And um, we're seeing a lot of pushback about everything mm -hmm. that is being used. And I just saw this thing on Instagram. I don't know if it's true. I've not fact-checked. Zero fact-checked people. But I saw this thing about this teacher working on Saturday because she has to catalog every book in her school, in her, in her classroom library, which if you're in elementary school is hundreds mm. and hundreds and hundreds of books. She has to catalog all of them and they all have to be approved with this three-step process. And so she's spending all of her Saturdays mm. trying to get all these in because until 
All of her books are approved. No kid in her class can read any of the books she has. Wow. Yeah, and you know what? There, sorry, just to, just real quick to, to add to that. There was, um, while I was in Harrisburg or right outside of Harrisburg for the um, PSCA um, board meeting, there was, you know, a lot of chatter about this county outside of Philadelphia where um, some parents were asking that certain words, certain phrases not be included at all in the curriculum um, where students were not allowed to discuss like changing government policies, like very specific things that the, this group of parents was basically telling teachers, you, you can no longer can talk about these things in your classroom. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised, Rebecca, if exactly yeah. what you're describing. You can no longer talk about how laws are made. I mean, like that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I- did they watch Schoolhouse Rock? I don't think they did. I don't nope. think they did. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think um, just to kind of answer the question, I think that the community um, should have a voice in like ends policies, like, you know, like when it comes to like the school board, like what we hope to accomplish. Unfortunately, though, like that's only limited access to like, you know, like those ends policies that they really because there's also state standards. Like you were talking right. about with the fairy tale situation. Like the schools have no choice. Like those state standards are probably going to be put inside of some accountability test, whether like, you know, in our state it's the SAT, you know, some schools have like utilized like the map or whatever. Um, So like we have to address those topics now um, individually, like for your kid, if you want your kid not to access or read a book, then that's your choice for your kid. Your kid might not have to read that book, you know, and they might not do well on the state test or on the SAT or whatever. That is your choice, you know, like, fine. But your choice does not, it cannot change the state standards. It yeah. cannot change the ends policies that are set by the school board that are elected and appointed by, um, like, the community. Like, so a few angry parents cannot change mm-hmm. it. I think yeah. that as school leaders, um, you know, and eventually, like, one day I'll be like Rebecca and become a district leader. Um, like, we do have to maybe do a better job at communicating with parents. Even at the school level, we probably do. I think sometimes mm-hmm. uh, we come off, you know, because a lot of us are educators or we're educated or whatever. Sometimes, like, we use acronyms or we talk in a way that makes us inaccessible to people in the community. Yeah. So it causes confusion. It causes fear, especially when people don't know how to advocate for their children. So mm-hmm. there are things that we can do. Now, there's also still going to be the people that are way out there and there's nothing you can do about that. But I think that we need to try to broaden out our middle a little bit more than what we've been doing. I'm I'm a firm believer in trying to get 1% better. If I could get one person that was, you know, on the crazy side now, uh, like understanding exactly where we're coming from and just a little bit more rational, at least understand, you don't have to agree agree with what we're teaching in schools or whatever, but you need to understand why and how that became a part of the state standards and things like that. Like it's not all, um, we don't all have like a choice individually at the school level because, you know, like, and, and, then, and then also, like, to Rebecca's point, like, there's also, um, like, you know, state puts a, a significant amount of money in on taxes. So they're going to have a say in what we can do in schools. Mm. If we don't do what the state wants us to do and we're not covering those standards, guess what's going to happen to your school? We're going to lose money because we're not doing what the state is telling us to do. So we do have to do some of those things. So, I mean, that's just part of it, you know, so. I'm noticing a theme that relationships are so huge. Like, they are. We, we have to have relationships with our parents, with our students, with our teachers, because we've gotten to the point where we just want to have a fight about everything. Mm-hmm. And, and if, 
if I know you and you know me, that's, I mean, we're going to take out the people who are, who are of an agenda and are coming with that. But like, I think we can really get to a point where we can talk about what is going on so that you can feel like, you know what? I understand now that makes sense. Like we have a plan. Mm -hmm. I trust you. You trust me. We've like lost that somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. And one of the things that I'm going to try to do this year, and I've already seen it work, um, can't really get into the specifics, but I want to start sitting beside parents instead of sitting in front of parents as an administrator. Um, You know, whenever there's a situation, I think that it's sort of like what you learn in school, being a school counselor. Like, you know, it's just something about sitting next to someone when you're talking to them that changes the power dynamic. Like, hey, look, I'm not trying to just dictate down on you. Like, I do hear you. I do hear your concerns for your student and for what we're doing. But like we got, we have to get to a point where we understand each other. Like I'm not asking you to agree with me, but I'm asking you to understand um, where I'm coming from and why I'm doing what I have to do as an administrator or what we're doing as teachers or as school counselors. Like we're doing what we have to do. Uh, it's honestly like more often than not, it's probably what's best for students. Sometimes the state has some crazy stuff that I think like, I think, uh, I think state testing already, I think that's nuts and I think it's pointless. Um, I think you could pretty much look at like the demographic data, like as far as like income and stuff like that, more so even than race. If you look at income, I could tell you what the site, what your scores are going to be. I can, yeah. I guarantee you. Um, so it's really pointless to me, but, um, but yeah, so I don't know. I don't even know where I was going with it. It's <laughs> <laughs> okay. We yeah. talking. We yeah, talking. Just talking. We talking. I don't know. Yes. Uh, let's, let's see. We got another comment. I saw on Twitter they don't even want librarians to read aloud anymore for children who don't get that at home. Very oh, yeah. Much. No, we're not going to do that. That's that's really that doesn't know anything about how learning works. Right. And that, oh. But that's the thing, right? Like, if you're not an educator, and it's not like exclusively if you're not an educator, then you don't understand. But it's but it's if if this is not part of what you do, what you were trained to do, what you were educated to do, what you've been doing for years and have learned how to do, then your knowledge is limited. And that's the thing. I feel like too many people don't realize that their knowledge about this is limited. And so that we do need to work together to find um, some kind of common ground or some kind of understanding, like you like you said before. Yeah, I totally yeah, agree. As a society, we are like going against their being experts on anything, right? Mm. Like we're seeing that with the medical community, we're seeing that with teachers, we're seeing that like with you know, we I think I know how everything works because I can Google it. And like I definitely understand surgery because I watch Grey's Anatomy. So right. nothing anybody can tell me. Right, right. Yeah. And, and I, I totally agree. And like you, I totally agree with it. I think that um also in the professional world though, like we we have to realize that maybe only 40% of Americans are graduating from college. So like, you know, a lot of times like people that don't truly understand, like that creates angst, it creates fear. So, you know, and that's why I always keep like I keep going back to like the relationships, like, man, like we gotta figure out like as the educators, as the professionals. As the, you know, like the people that actually know what the heck is going on, we need to figure out a way like and that's what this channel is really about, like breaking things down in education like this topic, um, you know, in a way that people out there can just see exactly what we're talking about, like getting rid of story time. Are you crazy? Like, man, story time was man. It meant so much to me. If you were yes. told me you weren't re- reading Indian in the cupboard because in which I mean, I'm sorry for, you know, I guess the, you know, what? You know, I mean, I guess it's not probably not the most appropriate uh, title, but like but at the same time, that book, oh man, that book was so good, man. I used to love when he came to life. You know what I mean? Like, like 
Mm-hmm. Like Bernstein Burns, like we're not reading Bernstein Burns because uh, your dad was upset. Or oh, we're gonna have problems after school. <laughs> like I promise you, we got big problems. <laughs> like that, I mean, it was nothing like sitting down. Like, no, I know, know. I know. Listening, like to the teacher read, and it also taught me um how to become a better reader, how to insert pauses, like for commas and periods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, like all of it, man. Like just, uh, just how to communicate. So it was just so yeah. important. Children, oh, try to get rid of it. Oh man, that would be high schoolers like to be read to. Yes, yes, absolutely. Man, please read. You can read to me right now. Right. <laughs> right. Um, let's see. We have another comment. Um, in Florida, DeSantis said teaching requirements are too rigid as the state moves to let veterans without. Oh man, yeah. I don't think I just posted the best um quote, a comment from a blog I was reading about why this is such a terrible idea to my personal Instagram. I have, I'll try to remember to post it on my my public ones. Please, but. Do. Um, is basically like if things are already not going well and we have people who are, you know, excellent at their craft, can you imagine the kind of, I can't think of the right word that's not cursing, the kind of ridiculousness that we would have (laughs) if we put a bunch of people that have no idea, like just because even if you're good with children, just because you're good with children doesn't mean you know how to teach. Like, do you know how to break down reading into the science of reading? Do you know how to help kids learn math concepts in a way that help like relies on their number sense and relies on their knowledge of how numbers work together? No, you just like know how to help kids like get along with one another in a group setting that you happen to be in this one time. That is not the same thing as teaching. Exactly. And teaching 20, 25, 30 children at once. Like it's, it's, I mean, part of it is like, okay, is this, is this like the surfacing of a belief that educators are not incredibly skilled professionals. Yes. I mean, that's the right, right. Like that's the only conclusion I can come to, to make sense of how anybody can make a decision like an un, an untrained, unqualified adult, like any adult in the room will do as long as you are safe, I guess, maybe. I mean, it's just, yeah, I mean, blasphemous. It's and it's a disservice to children. And for any, I mean, I really hope parents understand their power and understand that absolutely under no circumstances will my child be in a classroom with someone who is not a qualified, certified teacher. And I hope they take a stand against it. I really, Mm -hmm. really do. Yeah, I just so hard. I tagged you guys. Okay, all right. I'm gonna Thank look you. at it later. Thank yeah, you. Teaching is so so hard. Let, let me tell you. I mean, not only oh, do like like do you have to have like a level of understanding of the content first off. So we like we they, they, we haven't even talked about the veterans actually having enough credit hours and knowledge of the content. Like, do, can you really go in there and teach algebra just because you you know like you're a veteran? Um, can you really go in there and teach chemistry or like is, is this gonna be, even be safe? Um, are you going to be able to scaffold this lesson for uh, kids with multiple different ability levels? Like, and, and with 30 mm-hmm. kids with 30 different levels of need, with mm-hmm. 30 different, uh, like, sets of ACEs, uh, adverse childhood experiences, uh, trauma, all of this different stuff that these kids have went through. Not only that, not all be- veterans, but some veterans have went through some trauma themselves. So now you're going to put them in a room 
with 30 students. Like, <sighs> like you don't know what they're bringing to the table. Um, and these, these some of these veterans are coming back home from multiple wars, from multiple tours, oh, and we're gonna put them inside of the classroom. Yeah, bad ideas. I, I, I do the, not think the that's other a good thing idea. that I read about is like how veterans' actual skills from being in the military are not translatable to public sector. So, like, you were an EMT or whatever they call it in the military. I'm not super knowledgeable about this. I apologize if I get the details wrong. But, like, you were an EMT in the military, but you don't have the correct license to be an EMT in public sector like how terrible that is. And like, you really actually have exactly the skills you need. Why don't we fix that first? Right. Mm -hmm. Like, why are we saying here's this random job that has nothing to do with what you did in the military? Because as far as I know, there's nobody in the military that teaches reading to children. And we're going to say, just because you were in the military, now we were going to give you this other job. Like, is that even something people want? Like, right. I don't understand. It's just so bad. It's yeah, just such that's a bad true. Idea. I mean, I, I don't know if they even, like you said, I don't even know if they would even want the job. Who comes up? To be honest, I mean, stuff. like, I some of them are probably more, like, higher paid than we are. So, I mean, um, I, yes. You know, right? I mean, They're I have some friends that make a lot more than I do. Yes. <laughs> Mm, 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 so, so yeah, so I, I I totally disagree with um with that move. I just really don't see how, see how it's gonna even end up working uh, without some type of emergency level training. I mean, Why even with that, veterans. I don't understand. I I like missed that part of the okay. yeah. Like why did he, why did he select the veterans? Thing, but no clue. Okay. Yeah, no clue on that. Mm-mm. So um. Just I don't know. Going back, going back to the book here, um, quickly. I guess uh, the last part of the book was about uh, facing pushback, um, and you kind of get like we're kind of talking about it now. But like, what are some of the, the highlights of like what people need to know when they're facing pushback, um, down in Florida or wherever they are? Like, so like, what are some, some of some of those uh, those things that we could do? Yeah. So I think. Um... Early on, you know, what you mentioned before about, um, you know, knowing who your people are in the building, like knowing who has your back, knowing who, you know, is aligned with your work and and the work that you set out to do within your school. um, I think that's incredibly important. Um, Having open and honest conversations with your administration is incredibly important. Um, so that you're on the same page when when pushback should happen, whether it be internally or externally um, out in the school community or even within within your building. Um, I like to I mean, I I enjoy presenting to an extent. Um, <laughs> Rebecca knows this about me. Um, but, you know, every year at the beginning of the year, we always have orientation. We always have faculty and staff returning to the building before students. And so making sure that the school counselor has time to address the school community and and let everyone know these are the plans for the year. This is what we're focusing on. These are the issues that have been coming up um, so that, you know, the school community can be on board and, and hopefully not bring about too much pushback. But even if, you know, the outside community, parents, um, community members, other people involved with school life have pushback. Students may have pushback. Um, even though I, I feel like students are, are often the, the last group um, to push back on, on things sometimes. Um, just being prepared for what that looks like as an entire school community. So you're not just 
left out there stranded by yourself. And then also taking time away. Like I'm good about taking my days. I'm good about that PTO. Um, making sure that you have family time, that you have sort of this counter to some of some of the negativity that could potentially arise. Um, honestly, I feel like if you have a really good community that understands the work and where you've aligned many relationships and strong relationships, um, you typically won't get too much pushback. But if you still should, um, you know, have a way to counter that in your own personal life, people that you can talk to. I have a ton of school counselor friends and I'm so grateful for my school counselor friends. I'm grateful for my corporate America friends who I can vent to um, and just sort of let it out and let it go and know that I'm still doing good work um, to push forward. Yep. And then Rebecca, if you want, you could chime in. No pressure. again. <laughs> well, I mean, everything that she said, but also just, I think something that really sits well with me is that when you're getting criticism, just to think to myself, like, I'm not the one that's making it uncomfortable, the situation or the person or whatever yeah. racism I'm pushing against is the one that made it uncomfortable. And I'm actually trying to, like, pull it back into equilibrium. Um, I think, you know, I definitely can be a person who gets nervous about conflict, and I've had to learn how to overcome that. So um, that helps me a lot to think about um, when I need to receive criticism and pushback and to know that's kind of part of the process, even though it doesn't feel great in the moment. Mm -hmm. And then all the things that Alicia said about finding your people that will support you and taking your break and taking your time, it is absolutely a marathon and not a race. Mm. So um, I think we have such a difficult position to be in that we're fighting against the system while we're within a system. And um, we need those people. We need the people who are outside the system pushing on it. We need the people who leave the system because of it. And we need the people within the system that are, are trying to change it from within. It takes all of those people to, to make a systemic change. Yep. So um, just uh, I guess the next question here is, so what's next for you all? Like this was already a, a ton of like just incredible information right here today. But what's up next for y'all? Like what do y'all got going on? I don't know. Maybe <laughs> something. I think it's something. Could it be a word that starts with a B and ends with a K and has two O's in the middle of it? <laughs> Where we're talking and where we're trying to think through, you know, some things, Rebecca and I are incredibly proud of the work that we have done thus far. Um, we are really excited and we continue to be so excited um, by all of the districts and school counselor associations and, you know, all of the people that we've met over the years who are engaging in this work and who are also excited about this work. So, we're super, super proud of, of everything that, that we have done. Um, and we know that there's more to do. Um, and so many people in so many different spaces are doing such great, amazing work. Um, you know, and, and we're talking and we're, we're thinking through how we can continue to add to um, and be supportive of all of the work that, that folks are doing in their individual spaces, collective spaces, um, so we've, we've got a, we've got, you know, a couple ideas cooking. Yep. And then Rebecca, what's, ne what's next for you? <laughs> just <laughs> keeping on with the keeping on. I mean, I think that the work doesn't end. We just keep moving forward and, um, 
I love talking to school counselors about the work that they're doing and, and really helping people to see new options for how they can make an impact on their school and with their students. Yep. So I'm guessing both of you are all going to Atlanta this year too, right? Yes. We yep. will be there. It's not far for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. And and then um, let's see, where can people follow y'all on Twitter and uh, wherever you else you want to be followed? Yeah, well, follow me with caution <laughs> on Twitter. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you can follow me at always underscore Oges, O-G-E-S. Um, it's a, a childhood nickname that one of my elementary school friends uh, gave me. So you can you can follow me there if you'd like. Thank you for posting. Yeah. And now then... on Twitter as Counselor Up, which is my blog, my poor neglected blog, um, <laughs> counselorup.com, which you can also check out. And then on Instagram at Counselor Up blog. There we go. Counselor Up was already taken on Instagram. <laughs> so, someone it's okay. It's all good. I know. I was like, what in the world? Yeah. <laughs> the most random name ever, and someone already had it. Yep. And then uh, got the blog right here. Got it posted yes. right there. Thank yep. you. And then uh, in the description of this video, there's all kinds of cool stuff. Like the, the link to the book, the Amazon link to the book is down there, too. So make sure that you go and buy the first book. You can't get to the second book until you read the first book. So you got to you got to be prepared. You got to get ahead of this thing. Uh, also underneath there, like you'll find all kinds of cool stuff like our uh, like the merchandise for the channel. Um, the links to all of my equipment, all of this stuff's down there just in case like there's someone out there that wants to be a YouTuber. And then, uh, ladies, I cannot thank you enough for your time. I, I have literally been waiting for this day to have y'all on there. I promise you, like since the very beginning. Oh, you're so like, kind. I mean, my wife will tell you, like I, I literally had the books with me everywhere and stuff like, wait, there we go. You know, That's so awesome. I mean... <laughs> So yeah, so this is this has been great, man, and I, and hopefully I could have you on again, uh, you know, like if there's ever something else that, that pops up, or if you want to talk about the new book and promote it, hopefully at that time like the platform is going to be huge, and then we can get it out there to everyone and everyone <laughs> can buy the book. So, so yeah, I, thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks for you. having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, for sure. So uh, with that being said, uh, I'll I'll talk to all y'all later. I'm gonna hit the uh, hit the end broadcast button, and uh, if y'all have any questions for me, Rebecca and Alicia. Uh, we could talk afterwards, but I'm going to hit the end broadcast. I'll see you all later. Peace.